0: From the west side of Charlotte, North Carolina, this is Here for Good. Here Here for good! Here for good! A collection of stories and conversations with the kinfolk of QC Family Tree. QC Family
1: Tree. QC Family Tree. QC Family Tree.
0: QC Family Tree. Tree. Listen in as we seek to awaken the popular imagination to new possibilities of abundance and spark social action for the common good. I'm one of the kinfolk. My name is Helms Carroll. Inspired by Walter Bruggemann, this episode is all about the ragtag hopers, those who refuse, deny, or doubt the totalizing claims, and who continue to keep imagining and attempting alternative modes of life, and who keep experimenting with the strange virtues of justice that take forms of neighborliness. The biblical response to the extraction economy of totalism is prophetic movement non-credentialized poets with no pedigree who create imaginative space such that things could be different. They use hymns and poems filled with playful imagery to shake us out of our assumptions of extraction to show the world could be organized differently because God is among us.
2: Here in the middle of imagining I close my eyes, and the night isn't dark, and the things that I lose, I find...
0: to have conversations with folks doing the good work, living the good life, co-creating the good life in their places. During this segment of the podcast, we'll take some time to shed a little light on the good people of the world who are the little lights of hope. Cambrick Ashcraft is an activist, minister, and content strategist whose work is cited on CNN, Refinery29, and the Wall Street Journal and has been featured on WNBC and the Women's March. She's presented nationwide on topics including systemic injustice, religion, and involving young children in advocacy. She's in the early stages of launching Raising Imagination, a platform to elevate the conversation among parents who desire to raise the imaginations of the young in our homes, while simultaneously raising our collective imagination for a more just and loving world. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and twin boys and one girl.
1: Being an activist is all about, um, honestly, raising a collective consciousness and doing that through raising voices of people and communities that are generally not hurt for whatever reason. Usually that's for reasons of systemic injustices. And then hoping, you know, through the raising of those voices and those causes to move us towards some type of positive change. Very different, you know, some days that may look like writing a letter or calling a congressperson, Some days that might look like um, going and standing with um, LGBTQ people in the Pride Parade. Some days that might look like marching for climate control. Some days that might look like just sitting with someone as they go to family court. You know, activism has a lot of different faces and not one
0: specific image. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that spark of... Caring about and actively working towards social impact. Where do you think that came from?
1: Um, I was at a college reunion actually with some people that I went to Stanford with. um, Some of whom I haven't seen in like 14 years, a couple months ago. And actually, my freshman roommate asked me just that. She's like, "I always knew you had this in you, but you know, why I said it, or you know, more just like, yeah." Do attribute contribute this kind of spark for to. um And I thought about it, and one I was like, Oh, what does that mean that I haven't always been, you know, for these things, or that I wasn't necessarily that in her eyes in college? Um, so that was like part of the, the thing I was wrestling with. I don't think that's a bad thing, but just a recognition that we're always changing and always becoming, and that's okay. Um, but when I did think about it, I really think that it boils down to three different things. Um, and i don't know that they're in a specific order but um one of them i would say is my faith i think that um you know my i am i went to seminary i'm an ordained minister so i have training in theology and you know my understanding of the person who christ was was a revolutionary um and was a table turner and was someone who um in his character was was a disruptor. You know, if, if things weren't collectively leading us towards a better way, then he was going to turn over a table and say, "Let's disrupt that and do something about it." And so, my spark, my passion for this type of work is definitely defined by my understanding of what it means to be a person of faith. Specifically, um, my background is Christian. I think. Secondly, becoming a parent really further ignited this drive in me. Um, when I think about the world (laughs) and the world that we are leaving, the world that we are showing, the world that we are teaching, that's, you know, mirrored to us every day when we have little people following us around and when we have small children who, we are teaching about the world. And there's some really shitty stuff that happens in the world. And if I don't wanna be, I don't wanna sugarcoat that, you know, I don't wanna act like those things aren't there, but I would rather, you know, when it's appropriate and how it's appropriate, developmentally, say, hey, here's the reality. Here's why it's that way. And you know, what would you like to do about it? Do you want to have any part in, in making a change towards that? Um, the third thing I would say is living in New York and getting out of a very homogeneous environment that I grew up in and that I also went to college in. That's not to say that the things that I experience here are um, necessarily different than other cities around the whole country. I know that they're not, but coming to New York specifically for me was very poignant in the the sense that, you know, I came here and was, you know, just fully immersed in a diverse culture, you know, right in the middle of Hell's Kitchen that I had to deal with in a very intimate and incarnational way every single day. And so it was, you know, um, transformative for me to think about, okay, you know, what does it mean that in this city, at one minute I am walking over a homeless person so that they can sleep, and in the next minute I'm celebrating a luxury skincare line, you know, worth billions of dollars. Um, so having to play with those juxtapositions of the haves and the has nots in real extreme ways um, really ignited a passion for me for this type of work and outlook. Hmm.
0: What does the good life look like?
1: I guess I'll start from a a personal level. Like, what would I, you know, at the end of the day, I to look back and feel happy about my life. What would a good life be? Um, And not to be redundant, but I think if I could say that I had um, the patience and the humility and the spirit to find and to see goodness in all people, Um, and further to really empower and encourage everyone to live the best versions of themselves possible, um, that that would be a really great thing. You know, in order to do that, a lot of people are, people are up against all different things. So encouraging and empowering one person to look like, to live their best life is gonna look very different than empowering and encouraging the next person. And a lot of that then goes back to my passion for activism because there's probably a lot of um, systems and cultural norms and barriers that we would need to break down to help some people live um, the best life possible for them. I think um, helping people finding commonality in their differences um, would be a thing that I would look back on and say, that's really good Um, being able to see every single person as made in God's image and worthy of fundamental human rights is very important to me and I think um, on a collective level you know whatever um, faith tradition someone has I think that there's a lot of sacredness in saying that we could all agree that there's a higher power that has made all of us and if we can agree to see that that each of us are made in this higher high sacred power, um, that maybe the way that we treat each other and the laws that we put in place um, will look a little different. Hmm.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about raising imagination? And what was that thing called? It's like, um, it's in your bio. It's like some new term that I have no idea what it is. It's like, so, what is it? Content. It's kind of like the word, <laughs> what is it? Content strategist. What is that? And, okay, is that so go term? ahead. Go ahead. Content strategist. It must be a New York term then. It's not in North Carolina. <laughs> so um, helping.
1: Yeah. So basically helping you know whatever whoever you are if you're a freelancer if you're a church if you're a nonprofit um, figure it out what it is that you want to say what it is that you want to produce. creator like you would know what I meant if I said that right mm-hmm. so then a strategist is more just you're helping them think big picture oh. what are the implications if you put this content into the world like what are the implications for that um, so then sure, it's-, it's, it's a fancy word for saying like you're doing content creation but I do at least personally when I'm creating content I like to think about the bigger implications mm-hmm. of how this is going to make a lasting impact or not um, so, yeah, I mean, developing, um, I did the curriculum for Clue Camp this summer for Health Kitchen. Um, it's called The Future is You and Me. I'm really excited about that, actually. Different churches um, and faith groups coming up from over the country to do that. I'm working on slowly some family curriculum for the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, so, there's a little bit of strategy behind that. <laughs> Um, different, uh, you know, parenting articles for one-off organizations. Most of my time right now, I am focusing on this new project called Raising Imagination, um, which kind of came about um, a few different ways, and it's still Indispensable, all hmm. um, and so i i kind of did i just said you know what i'm gonna do it and um i decided to then i was like okay so what what difficult political climate build more bridges than walls
2: Um, and i know that you know we're
1: hearing that a lot but i have come to realize yes that is actually the only way that we are going to change anything in the world is to look across lines and figure out how we can have conversations and so i thought okay well what are some of the most non-threatening things in the world imagination and children Mm -hmm. So maybe then this is my kind of entry point um, to just documenting things that are very natural for me, but yet are part of much more complex, larger, important conversations. Um, And so I was talking with um, some friends of mine in Austin who are brilliant branding and um, design people, and they're helping me like with the website and with branding and all these things. And they were trying to help me come with a name also. And they were listening to me speak about activism and my passions. And Craig said, "Racing." He said, "I'm hearing the word race a lot," um, and I loved it. You know, he, he I was like, "Yeah, you're right." And I, what I really liked about the word racing was the double play on the word mm-hmm. um, one. As parents, we're literally raising people in our homes, right? Like, we're literally raising them. But then also, there is such a piece of activism to me and of living this common good life that is about raising conversations that are important and that is about raising a social consciousness um, for a better way. And so that really stuck. Uh, I was like, oh, I love raising. I'm going with raising. And then kind of figuring out the second word um, just kind of came to me one day. I played with a lot of different things, but. You know, I am a theologian, um, and there is a real state element to imagination um, and to prophetic imagination specifically. And so, um, again, I thought, gosh, yeah, there's nothing more non-threatening but yet super important than imagination. Um, so that's how the Word itself actually came to be. Um What I hope that it is, I hope it's a lot of different things. One, I hope it's a uh, platform for like-minded people to be able to talk and have conversations about the difficulties, the joys, um, the stresses in involving our family in this type of um, lifestyle and this type of work. Um, That's one thing. Another thing is I do hope that it is an entry point for conversations for people to reach across the aisle and to build bridges to see oh this is a a, this is a mother i'm a mother you know i care that my child is happy she cares that her child is happy how is she doing it how can we find commonality in something and then go from there and a practical standpoint i mean you know this too like there are podcast and I think that um, there's no greater way to expand people's imaginations and to raise their imaginations than to just tell them the story or for them to hear the story of someone who's different than them and so one of the things I want to do is interview um, people and organizations and projects who I believe are moving us towards a more just and loving world
0: Mm. and what made you decide to choose a platform rather than like a place or or um a program Mm -hmm.
1: because i was ready to get started honestly and this was something i knew i knew how to do and it was something i knew that i could gain some um initial traction with and then um see where that takes me so might there eventually be something else maybe so Mm -hmm. um you know i was interviewing um a philanthropist here in new york abby disney recently and she asked something similar, like, there's so much power in um, human interaction, like, what are you going to do with that? And I was like, I agree. I'd love to have a Raising Imagination conference, you know, eventually, or four times a year, or, you know, meetups in the city, um, or, you know, and then figure out how to do that in different parts of the country. Um, so I think I don't want to limit myself to just um, this platform right now because that's kind of where we're, where I'm starting. Mm-hmm. But I would, and I'm excited about seeing different avenues that it becomes.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I guess really like the place where, or the, the uh, experiential learning lab of where you are, the place where you're practicing this raising imagination is in your own home.
1: Yeah, it is. And um, it is, yes. Definitely in my own home, and it's also, I recognize that just by nature of being in a city like New York, in a city like Brooklyn, I am uh, naturally exposed to a lot of things that other people aren't that I can lift up. You know, my mm-hmm. experimental learning lab is also the city mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in a way that I'm happy to tell that story. You know, conferences that I'm able to go to, you know, people that I'm easily able to meet here. Um, that I would like to share with other people.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense too. So, you, do you find yourself kind of like sharing the voices of others, and also creating some of your own content that you want to share?
1: I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I think that um, I have a list of like thirty people. You and Greg are on it, actually. That you know, I would eventually like to um, to talk to and and say specifically. Uh, what are you doing towards this end? How do you think that you're moving us collectively towards a more just and loving world? Um, mm. And you know, one of going back to the whole imagination um, beginning, I am trying to um, figure out a way to less intrusively have conversations about social and political issues that I'm passionate about, and I am finding. Or let's say I'm trying to see if using imagination as that way is a less intrusive way to do this. So, for instance, um, and I know you you've seen a lot of my posts, but um, you know when we're talking about um, Syria, you know I could I could go off about President Trump, but I don't really want to do that anymore. You know, like I don't actually want to say his name anymore, and I recognize that all of these issues are so much bigger than him anyway, and they've been coming to a head in our country for so long anyway. And so instead of necessarily putting out just my specific um, thoughts about an attack, um, I'm going to just, just ask more questions. Like, what, if, what would it look like if we just practiced um, radical hospitality, mm-hmm. you know, and let more refugees in?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, What would it
1: look like if we imagined um, how, you know yeah hospitality um, yeah. or a radical welcome mm-hmm. and so just really framing these um, more difficult political issues in the sphere of what do we want to imagine um and i learned that from my kids i mean honestly like that is one of the reasons too why i'm um, passionate about these two things being together because i'm learning how to take a big meta step back to these issues and look at them from yeah the the big umbrella view. Um, you know, I wrote an article about taking my kids to the March for Our Lives, and we have basic conversations. They're only they're only three at a time about gun reform and how guns are bad, um, and they disproportionately hurt communities that are poor and people of color and that kind of thing. But then when I say, what would you like to write on a poster? You know, to um, an elected official about guns. They say, why do you have that gun? You know, and I think that's a great question. And it's a question that takes us the big helicopter view, right? So no longer we're we're fighting over partisan politics or background checks or bump stocks, but we're talking about why do we have a culture of violence? Mm -hmm. Like, what would it look like if we did it? Mm -hmm. And that's something where I think we can our, our Collective imagination in this country can be raised by listening to um, and learning from our children, too in that regard
0: Yeah, I have a friend that was talking to me about prayer recently and she was saying that she was talking with a therapist and and the therapist was saying when you pray rather than praying against the thing that you don't want and like putting energy into that instead pray for the thing that you do want and it's not like um, it's not like new agey like i'm going to put good vibes into the world but when you are like proclaiming and asking for the the heavens to come down in the ways that you imagine them to be in this space um, yeah. god for one god responds to that but also it brings something within you you get to be a co-creator with god in that mm-hmm. rather than resisting whatever evils are in in this space
1: yeah, absolutely yeah and that's um, there is the, you know, there's a book by Walter, um, Walter Gashford, Brigamon, sorry, um, and that you know, it called the prophetic imagination. And one of the quotes in there that's my favorite is the prophet does not ask if the vision can be implemented, for questions of implement implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. The imagination must come before the implementation. Our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. Mm. Um, and that's a real core inspiration for me, you know, for this project is I do believe exactly what you said. We have to kind of speak it into being ourselves, and then along with community, along with God, along with the spirit, we can work towards that.
0: Mm-hmm. So when I think of Amanda, um, I, I feel like you're sort of like a, punky Brewster and Clarissa explains it all but grown up like with maybe, maybe some I, glitter some bling you'll
1: well, appreciate that actually in my notes here I have the words punky Brewster
0: <laughs> so I was gonna I ask, ask you Marissa, though, oh you missed out sorry. um Anyway, I'm, so I, I have this thing within me where I can look back at things from pop culture as a child and be like, oh, yeah. that's why I care about yeah. this thing yeah. now. So tell me, is there some stuff back yeah, in your childhood?
1: Absolutely. Well, Punky Brewster's on my list. I mean, I think, you know, when I think about especially my childhood and things that were formed to me, it's um, it's the very carefree effervescence, uh, real effervescence for life. Um, colorful, creative, spunky characters that I always, um, loved, you know, so Punky Brewster, Pippy Longstocking, you know, when, you know, most people get like very nice things when they get married from their partner, and I got Punky Brewster stuffed animal, I'm still a little weirded out by that, but you know, not Punky Brewster, sorry, it was Pippy Longstocking, Pippy Longstocking, but you know, I, he knew me, I guess, um, So that, I loved um, watching the new Mickey Mouse Club um, on the Disney Channel. I wanted to be in the Mickey Mouse Club, but then my mom told me it would ruin the family dynamics if we all moved to Florida, so I couldn't audition. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you could say from a very young age, I understood, like, it's not all about you, girlfriend. This is, we live in community, hate to tell you. Yeah, so I think... Again, any, any of those characters that really had a, um, a special knack for life and a effervescence for life, I think were formative to me, and I would like to say, that goes back to my first question, if I were to look back and say what is the quote-unquote good life, I want all people to be able to have the best life they can have at the end of the day, and I recognize that, that I want everybody to be able to run around with different color shoes on and, you know, sing with a sparkle microphone on a stage if they want to. And I recognize that that, again, getting there looks very different for a lot of different people. And I would love to say that I've played a part in leveling that playing field and empowering, um, at least telling people, you are at least owed that. Hmm. Whether or not we get there, you deserve that Mm -hmm. as much as anybody else.
0: So your involvement with the Poor People's Campaign, do you see a connection between what the Poor People's Campaign is trying to do and this, um, and
1: allowing someone to be able to pursue the things that they dream of? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, Poor People's Campaign, they focus on five, um, evils, and basically those five evils are intertwined. You can't separate any of them, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, I'm, a white upper middle class person, um, but the fact that you are not, at some level, doesn't let me be my best version of myself. Mm. And I think that that is, um, is—I don't mean you specifically, Holmes. You know, I right. mean um, my black sister in the South Bronx. You know, living a very different life than I. And the fact that um, she is not a white upper middle class person um, affects me. And. That is something that I think um, where there's a big disconnect um, between people who often look like me, they don't, they can't make that connection. They don't understand, you know, that quote that your liberation is bound in mine and I'm not free until everybody's free. Um, There's a real disconnect for that, for people who grew up like me. And part of raising imagination is to try to help them see that in very real ways how your struggle is somehow connected to my struggle um, and how your either full liberation or lack thereof is also connected to mine. Um, And the Poor People Campaign is trying to say, look, the evils of poverty and the war uh, economy and ecological devastation and racism, these are all combined and they affect us all and they are holding people back from becoming the best versions of themselves
0: interesting because somebody when I went to uh, the direct action training here was talking about that one of the goals of the poor the poor people's campaign was to eradicate poverty and for me I had a little bit of like a Ugh, I don't know <laughs> I don't really know if I go with that because then um like Jesus was poor and God prefers the poor and God's favorite people are the poor so you know how why would we want to er- eradicate Poverty, I can understand eradicating like the war economy or um, plantation capitalism I can understand wanting to get rid of but like making it such that no one is poor seems to be it doesn't seem to match with our faith principles and values in fact it seems like all of us could eradicate um, Like homelessness and maybe even a a sense of poverty by choosing to live more simply such that other people could um, have the things that they need. You know, if we had a sharing economy, then it wouldn't necessarily mean that every single person is living from a place of wealth, but it would mean that everybody has what they need. So I like the way that you're putting it that um, it's not necessarily about eradicating poverty, but it's about these like five evils that we're trying to work towards.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really even heard that take on it because I think I would have some hesitation with that also. Mm-hmm. I think more about um, basically in a unifying way say, hey, um, one, uniting people in struggle, which is really, really important, um, and saying well, we know that there's more people than just me. So I think a lot of times um, people in power with money, uh, they get some of that power from not let from pitting people in oppression against each other and i think one of the things that the poor people's campaign can do in conversations like this is is help bring people together around um common struggle which Mm is powerful Mm
0: -hmm. well we have a few last minutes um of like when we're actually recording and then we'll catch up for just a second but um, are there any like remaining things that you want to make sure people hear on the podcast specifically
1: looking you know I think um another one of the catalysts for starting raising imagination also was um was actually my time in Kentucky I was there for a year um about six months ago now um and other than that for about the past 10 or 11 years I've been in New York and I found that I was able um to go into a bar, to go in somewhere, and have very substantive conversations with people without a lot of um, fluff and without a lot of um, sugarcoating in a way that even in New York I haven't been able to do. And these are with people who have starkly different views than I do politically and socially, but we were able to kind of sit around a table and just go at it in a somewhat constructive way and so i started thinking about that i was like what is that about and then um a friend of mine was telling me that he's been reading this book and i wasn't able to get the name but i'll get back to you recently it's basically a psychology book saying that there is a very very small place in our brain that allows um the, even the potential for change unless you have had a wants them to be changed, okay, and so I was like, that's very fascinating, but I found that to be true when I was If they, um, we have to be in the public square, you Mm -hmm. know, crying out with and for people and with, um, I mean, and crying out about injustices and for justice. And so that is um, also part of my passion around raising imagination as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's
1: really important. (laughs) So um, one of the quotes that is wake me up in the morning um, right now is by Angela Davis um the fierce advocate um and it's the one where she says you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time Mm. so i love that quote and sometimes i think we are overwhelmed in thinking that anything that we can do can make any type of change or specifically lasting change and that quote is a reminder from someone who's been on the front lines her whole entire life and faced these issues um firsthand um, that, yeah, we need to act like it is possible to radically
2: transform the world. And we should be doing that all the time. Mm. If you want to be somebody, if you want to go somewhere, you better wake up and pay attention. Hey. This is the story of Pentecost, where the fire rushes down from heaven, and uh, there's a rush of wind, and all of a sudden, people with divided tongues are speaking, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other languages. But the curious thing about them speaking in other languages is that whatever language it is they're speaking in, everybody who's listening is able to hear in their own language course some sneer and think that perhaps they're just drunk early in the morning which makes you wonder about the disciples reputation for strong drink and then begins Peter's sermon to the to those who are gathered a promise to quotation from the prophet Joel um, that God's spirit will be poured out and that there will be signs on earth of the coming time when the name when everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.
0: To me, the way to go about Pentecost is to try to make this story real. And so, if there are ways that you can have people participate in a reenactment of the story the best you can, that's the way that I feel like this one just needs to get into our bodies. And so, it needs to be experienced. So, maybe having people from different tongues speaking, or maybe having the choir or other participants um, bring in the sounds of rushing wind, I think all of those are ways that this can become alive. I love Pentecost. I love the visuals of Pentecost, fire and wind and the color red. I think all of those can really be utilized to not really have to make sense of the story, but let the story make sense of us. I think using as many sensory things as possible would be helpful. The Philippians passage in chapter four, verses four through nine. Again, songs come to mind when I when I read the passage. There's another possibility here. There's that song, you know, "Rejoice in the Lord always." Again, I say, "Rejoice." Well, it would probably be pretty easy to find a way to do that in around with multiple languages and to utilize that um, maybe in like a choral response during prayer, especially because they're talking about giving thanksgiving and having a peace and Christ guarding the hearts and minds of each other. This could be a really helpful passage to bring in towards intercessory prayer or towards invocation.
2: And this, this is a strong exhortation from Paul. Uh, you can imagine him like a a preacher towards the end of a sermon whose, whose voice is rising and who begins to fall into a, a strong rhythm as the spirit kind of takes control of his words. and So you get these, this, this passage with this repetition. And, um, and so I think that's a really a musical piece that's happening there. That music of the language combined with the visuals of Pentecost pre- present a lot of strong imagery for us.
0: And then the John chapter 14, 16 through 17 passage might be a really interesting, interactive way to give benediction. Like what is it that we could give to the people so that they can kind of have a tangible understanding that Christ abides with them? And how can we have them leave understanding and recognizing the spirit of truth that they are able to receive because they know Christ and Christ abides with them. I think that would be really an interesting idea to think through. Maybe it has to do with fire or light um, since it's Pentecost. Maybe it has to do with like an imprint or like a red written, you know, drawn on their hand or um, something that they can tangibly see and recognize that they are abiding with Christ and Christ with them.
2: There's also some of the more radical readers of the the New Testament Uh, will translate this this term world that Jesus uses frequently in this section of John as, as the domination system or as the empire. Uh, and so, so those visual markers, I think, can be an important reminder that the Christians are, are called to be set apart from the domination system of the world, that we have a different story to tell and a different song to sing and that the world's not able to receive that song. The domination system is not able to receive uh, the spirit of truth who uh, is an advocate or a comforter. Uh, and and that is the, the task of the church and in its life and ministry to to embody that alternative to the domination system that we live under.
0: The Revised Common Lectionary looks at Acts chapter 2 as well for its primary text, but then it also points towards Ezekiel chapter 37. And goodness gracious, the Valley of Dry Bones Uh is a very powerful story and also powerful for this time. And I want to mention that there's a podcast called Can These Bones? And it's about asking the question, can the bones of the church universal survive? Is there new life, new breath within these bones? Um, And so as a pastor... um, think that might be a really helpful thing to listen to as you're walking through these weeks.
2: If I'm talking about this passage with my congregation, the first place that uh, my eyes really stop at is that uh, God says to Ezekiel, mortal, can these bones live? And Ezekiel responds by saying, "Um, Lord God, you know. Um, But it's hard to know how to inflect that. Is he uh, is he saying, of course not, dry bones can never live? Is he doubting that the bones can live? Is he kind of leaving open a, a hint for some faith? Is, is he assuming that uh, God is about to do something remarkable? Um, so wh- where does he fall? How, do, how does he say that? And how does the way that he responds to God's question with his question, uh, how does that in- inflect the way that we read the rest of this story?
0: All right, and then there's Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 27. Gracious, another, but another more body imagery. So we have, like, the bones and the sinews and the muscles and all that, and now we're in groaning and labor pains.
2: So on Pentecost Sunday, that idea of groaning, and uh, later on in the passage of sighs too deep for words... Uh, calls back to uh, God breathing life into those dry bones, but it also calls to uh, the, the Pentecost story and the, the rushing wind, and also the way that language, which of course is just moving air, uh, is heard by everyone in the vicinity of the disciples in their own tongues, so that they're all able to understand it. So this, uh, the music of of rushing wind. Uh, permeates all of these stories as an image to work with.
0: This reminds me of um, an artist and who has a project that she calls Holler in Space and it is this exploration of um, using groans, moans, words, dance to explore um, aliveness and also to honor uh, the past and, and look towards the future uh, there's a podcast that I'll add into the link the, in the commentary uh, to help you to, to hear more about the hollering space but another thing that is a practice in um, somatics and uh, yoga practice is to use the cleansing breath so this might be an interesting time to use breath prayer as a part of the worship service cleansing breath is when you find a way to breathe deeply through the nose and you fill the body with the breath and then you exhale audibly with the sigh out the mouth and you do that several times in a row and the just the release um, helps you to feel more relaxed and at ease i think a lot of times we have a completely Uh, restrained worship services no one's allowed to make a peep or if they do it needs to be at a certain expected time Um, and so there's not really a time for us to sort of have these full-bodied expressions freely so maybe even though it still would be structured maybe providing the time for people to breathe deeply to feel the breath entering and exiting the body for them to recognize that breath is the breath of life and then for them to like release that in, a, in an audible way such that they might find a sense of calm and peace might be a helpful practice for this day. Thanks for listening to Here for Good. Here for for good. good. Here
2: for
1: good. Sponsored by QC Family Tree. 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 Here for good.
2: good. Here for good. I was going to say,
1: I don't want to
0: say it.